Hello and welcome back to the Miss Amanda Chen Show. We're now in season two of the 100 Masked Men series where I anonymously interview different men from all around the world about what masculinity means to them, gender expectations, and how that affects how they interact with women. This month, we're taking a special focus on men's mental health, sponsored by Tether, the world's first online peer-to-peer support community connecting men for open and honest conversations about life. This week, I'm highlighting the different lives of Asian men. Masked man number 44 is the masked mentor. He shares his story on losing a relationship with a mentor he truly admired and appreciating the growth of that loss as one of the most precious learnings towards his personal development. If there are no consequences, what is there to learn from a mistake? We talk about what being a man of integrity might mean, which communication tactics that bring people's walls down and which ones bring people's walls up and how to look at our emotions not as good or bad, but just acknowledging all of the feelings that make us human. Let's get into it. I hope you enjoy the show. I grew up in Victoria, a little on Vancouver Island, a little island off the coast of Vancouver with, uh, you know, a little nuclear family, my one sister, uh, my two parents, and um, my mom is Korean, my dad's German definitely a biracial household was really interesting on, on our, it wouldn't be uncommon in my holiday events to have sauerkraut for breakfast and kimchi for dinner and yeah my parents stayed together till I was 18 when they split and it wasn't the nicest split you could say like there was restraining orders involved it was quite traumatic I would say at, at that point in my life but it was also ultimately the best thing for them the six years prior to that through my teens, neither of them were happy. There was lots of fighting, lots of tension in the household. And it definitely put the onus on me to be the communicator in the house, the one who was the mediator of the family. And it, it taught me a lot of what I get paid to do today. Very cool. Do you think that that tension and that dynamic in your household ultimately brought you towards this desire to be a communicator, moderator type in your Absolutely. Yeah. Seeing the seeing the absence or lack thereof in my family. And so much of it was avoidable. Right. So when we get when we get emotional, when we get excited about things and we get invested and passionate, often it just puts the blinders on and we we are reduced from humans to animals. Right. We don't think clearly. We say things we don't mean and, you know, fuck you. And you're this, you're that and hurling accusations and uh, unwilling to look at ourselves. That's that's where the, break, the breakdown in communication happens. So seeing, seeing that with a bit of an objective third-party viewpoint in my family unit growing up, absolutely. It made me want to help. So you were basically like a teenager at that time. So emotions were pretty rampant as well at that time for you. Were you the, how old was your sister at the time? And how were you both navigating through that tension? Sure. She's a year and a half older than me. And throughout that time, let me put it this way. So my mom growing up would have been the more emotional, flippant, like volcanic personality type. And my sister adopted more of that, at least growing up. My dad was the more German, stoic, like Berlin Wall style of emotions. where You're not <laughs> going to get much from him kind of thing. And I kind of gravitated more towards my dad's side of emotionality because I, I started to get this perception that emotions are dangerous. I saw what happened when my mom went into quote unquote kamikaze mode, which is actually how my dad referred to it at the time. Not a very healthy relationship for sure. But yeah, I saw, I saw how dangerous that could be. So I learned to subdue my emotions, become very like 
stoic, logical, not getting too involved in things. And uh, my sister was more on the explosive side. So she moved out at the age of 17, I think. And and really to get that distance from the family unit, I, I can see now looking back. So she wasn't around the household when my parents actually did go through their divorce while I was still living with my mom at the time. Yeah. So my dad moved away. He now lives in Ontario, but growing up, so it was just my mom and I at that time. And I saw firsthand how toxic it can be when someone's not, doesn't have a good grasp on emotional control. So that's interesting. You had one part overly emotional and totally out of control. And then you had the other totally unemotional and holding on to the control of emotions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would you not say that's also restrictive in terms of not being able to express yourself? Did you? 100%. (laughs) Or like there's both I see that both I see were toxic, right? Mm -hmm. One just is easier to paint as the bad guy than the other, right? But both are equally toxic. And it takes it's a two way street. I think growing up when I didn't know as much about the world and our emotions and such, it was, I, I, I will admit, like I did blame my mom more. I blamed her for her emotional outbursts and, and the anger and violence that I saw it cause. But it wasn't like that just existed in a vacuum. It was caused by something. And I can see now that that was by and large my dad's unwillingness to go there or his not being the kind of emotional partner or emotionally supportive partner that a marriage really needs to to thrive over the long term. And mind you, they were together 27 years, but no, absolutely. That lack of emotional expression is just as toxic as too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's just an overload of anything, right? So did you adopt that kind of cold front when you were engaged in romantic relationships, I guess, kind of 18 onwards? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And that took a lot of unlearning. It really took a lot for me to understand how that's negative and for a while in my early 20s, I would be in relationships where I can look back now and see I would condemn my partner if they were emotional in any way, shape, or form, right? At least in a bad way, mm-hmm. in a bad way with funny ears. And for me, I just wouldn't let myself do that. So it, it allowed me to stand on the moral high ground that I was the level-headed one, or I was the this and that and superiority complex 101. But uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was very negative. And it was only in it wasn't until I actually took a personal development course that it really blew, blew the hinges off that and allowed me to see how that came up in romantic relationships and friendships and all these, these places and um, seeing how prevalent it was. And it was when one of my closest friends at the time told me that he didn't really feel like he knew who I was or what I was going through, that it really hit home. Oh man, this is, this is, a, this is a defense mechanism or survival mechanism that I adopted a long time ago, that's not serving me anymore, right? In fact, it's put, it's creating more distance from the people I want to be closer to. It's been a lot of work over the last three, four years to unravel that and start to create a new operating system, especially in romantic relationships. Okay. Do you think it's easier or more difficult with a romantic relationship with the opposite sex versus a friendship with a, someone of the same sex? I don't think it's easier. Okay. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's definitely harder romantic relationships in my mind have a have a tendency of pushing our buttons there's a ted talk speaker who i've learned a lot from and one of the things she says is that we choose our romantic partner to heal our emotional wounds we choose our romantic partner based on the 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 healing process that we need to go through so 
So naturally we find the person that pushes our buttons, that makes us feel the things we don't want to feel, that reflects and is our mirror for the things that we don't want to see or look at. And um, at, at first, at least, I wasn't mature enough to know that. And I blamed my partner. Like it, the problem's all with them. The problem's all with them. And there's just been this direct parallel where the more I take responsibility for my life and see that, oh, wait, I'm the common denominator here for everything. And the more I've looked at my partner poking those sore spots as a calling for me to grow, the more I'm able to do that, the, the better my life has, has become in every way, shape and form. Okay. So you say that you've been working recently on personal development over the last three, four years, and you've, you know, kind of made that a priority. Did you have a tipping point or um, a moment that made you want to really dig deeper? Hmm. Good question, Amanda. I think it was, it wasn't necessarily like a hit rock bottom and face down in the, in the urinal type of moment. It was more like, it was actually a funny turn of events where the company I worked for, I wish there was a better story, but they just sponsored all their employees to attend this, this conference. The door was probably shut before then. Once it opened a crack, it blew off, the hinges blew off. And all of a sudden I was standing at the doorway of all this learning and discovery that, that was really necessary for me. And, and since then, I've also realized, and I realized right away, it's quite daunting, I think, because it's, it's a topless mountain. It's never somewhere I'm going to arrive at. I'm never going to just self-actualize and all of a sudden, no, I'm a perfect partner. I've got, my shit doesn't think, like that's never going to happen. So I think like, for me, that was very daunting at first, but as I've continued to go through the process, it's just become like, it's like making food or it's like getting groceries. It's like, you know, playing sports for me. It's just a kind of walking the dog. It's just something that's, that's a part of life now and, and hopefully always will be. Was there any hesitation when you first experienced it and you said, you know, it was pretty daunting for you just to realize like, oh my God, there is so much work to do. Did anything put you off? Yeah, definitely. One of the exercises that I had to do as part of this course that I took was calling the people in my life that I was out of integrity with. This is a horribly painstaking exercise when I'm 23 years old with a whole bunch of stuff in my life that I've been pushing off or, or deprioritized or sweeping under the rug saying, it's not a big deal, right? I didn't, I'm not so bad, making excuses for my behavior. And, uh, you know, this, this, was, this was across my family. This was across my friendships. This was across like old business mentors that I hadn't talked to in years. And I literally went through every relationship in my life. I wrote letters, I called them, I basically not just apologizing, but taking responsibility for my part in whatever was situational to our relationship. So that was, that was definitely a big, a big tipping point for me, but I would equate the experience to like being squeezed through a tube, really uncomfortable, really painful, but on the other side, just like a totally different world from which I could, I could operate from. And since then, my life's never been the same. Was there any particular person that was the most challenging to write this kind of response to? And did you ever get a response back from anyone that surprised mm. you? Yeah, I'd say the one that was the most difficult actually was an old business mentor. There was a few easy dominoes like my sister, my mom, you know, people that are in my corner anyways. And I have a wonderful family unit. Like I love, I love my family so much and we have very close relationships. I'm, I'm lucky to say I was always felt loved. I always felt nurtured growing up by them. So those were, I would say, the easier ones to 
go clean up and wonderful friends as well. The one that was really tough for me looking back is an old business mentor of mine. So this was a very successful serial entrepreneur who took me on as a mentee when I was in university. And he was there by my side, guiding me, coaching me, supporting me through my first entrepreneurial venture. And wonderful man, just an absolute, genuinely like generous, caring, witty, funny, wisecrack of a guy, someone who I wanted to model my life after, right? Had a great family, loving relationship, all the stuff. Really, really a guy who seemed like he had it all. And, um, you know, looking back, I wasn't happy with how the relationship ended because what had happened was I was running a, a business at the time and he owned a few buildings and it was a painting business. And he owned a few buildings that he um, referred me to, to the property manager and ended up booking the job with me. And one of the jobs I ended up subcontracting to someone else and the job went poorly. So here I am having gotten this big contract with my mentor who I really wanted to impress and please. And this one job goes horribly sideways. And to make matters worse, I went on exchange to the Czech Republic on the other side of the world. And I was not there in person to manage this project. I'd left it in, in my friend's hands who was there supposedly to do a good job, but she totally botched it. And it was my fault, but I didn't take responsibility. I, mm. I said it was her fault. I said she should have done this and she should have done that and did not take responsibility for it. And anytime you're in business, if you're subcontracting, it's your responsibility. If it's your, it's your, you know this, but just as well, if it's your client, it's your responsibility. So I was really, I avoided that. And, and it kind of led to the, the dissolving of our relationship over the years where we'd gone from someone who I could text at any point to me feeling really uncomfortable at even the thought of contacting this individual. And that stuck with me. So this was years later. We hadn't talked in years and it was still something that was un, unresolved in my life. And little did I know, like, I don't, I think a lot of people may not realize this, that those little things add up. They don't go away. The tides of time don't just wash those little sandcastles away. They stick. So I, I had to write him a letter because I tried calling him after this, this course didn't pick up, didn't answer, didn't answer my text messages. I got really self-conscious. I was worried, like he's totally cut me out of his life. He's forgotten who I am. He doesn't want anything to do with me. And uh, I ended up writing a letter and dropping it off at his front door. And I lived, I lived miles away by this time, but I made a trip and I wrote a, wrote a letter and dropped it off in his mailbox. And all I got for a response was an email that said something along the lines of, thank you for your letter. I'm familiar with this exercise and what you're seeking to do. Some people in some relationships are meant to be in your life for a period of time. And then we have to let them go. This is one of them. Good luck to you. And uh, I wish you all the best. And that was really hard for me because of all the other relationships, most of the time the reaction was, that's so wonderful. You're doing all this work. Good for you. I've like rooting me on and it brought us closer. This one was a, it was a snipping that tie. This was, this was like a releasing me and, and saying, you know, this isn't going to work out. And yet through that discomfort, I felt this weight go off my shoulders and I was, I was upset about it. It wasn't the outcome I wanted, but I slept like a baby that night. And, uh, and since then, you know, we don't have a relationship now. I wish we did, but that was one of those big growth moments that I had to go through in repairing my past relationships. I think that's really interesting that regardless of the work and effort that you put into it, I mean, you'll never be able to control what the other person's response is yet. We're always hoping that they're going to re-accept us 
back into their life and everything's going to go back to normal. Why do you think that matters to us so much? Because shouldn't it just matter to just do the exercise, like you said, you know, <laughs> like, why does that kind of additional hinge on maintaining that relationship and continuing your life with them? Um, I'm not, I, I can't speak for everyone. I know for me, I'd like to imagine that I live in a world without consequences. Where I don't <laughs> have to take responsibility, personal responsibility, if I happen to fuck up a relationship or make a, a blunder so that there may be some element of that. What, what do you think? Well, I think that we've been conditioned or trained, you know, regardless of whether it's social or cultural to, you know, keep people happy, not disappoint people, always maintain a relationship with them. Don't burn bridges. And when I was growing up, I just burned every single bridge. I just didn't care. (laughs) I still burn bridges, but I did it in a very aggressive way where it's like, if you're not coming with me, you're, you're against me. You know, it was, it was very toxic in that own sense of, I wasn't willing to do anything middle ground. It was like, you're in or out. And it was very aggressive. And I was happy to burn bridges. And then, you know, now that I realize how complicated relations, relationships are these days, like it doesn't, it's not as black or white as we might've considered it as. And I think even just like in this generation in 2020, the context is just a bit different than what it was before. Do you kind mm. of feel that the difference of like how you understand relationships back then to how you see it now and how you see it unfolding today? I think, you know, I actually want to speak on something you said earlier. I think that in fact, there's a real danger to that people pleasing mentality. Mm-hmm. I think there's a real erosion of trust and integrity with oneself. If we, when people start to do that too much, and start to become this kind of wishy-washy, half-baked relationships with everyone, which is like, it's kind of like master of all, or was it jack of all trades, master of none. You end up having these kind of lukewarm relationships with people. And rather than saying no to some relationships so that you can be a firm yes in others. Mm-hmm. Right? That was a hard lesson that my business mentor back then taught me at the time. I would have loved if we could have just kept a some somewhat lukewarm relationship and repaired it, but I wasn't providing value in his life. Yeah, I I see that now, and I wish I I wish I could have. I wish I'd known that at the time. But that lesson has really taught me, like that that was the best thing he could have done for my growth. It's the absolute best thing he could have done for my growth. I'm so happy now that he did do that and that we didn't continue a relationship because otherwise I might not have changed my behavior. I might have gone on taking advantage of things or not taking full responsibility or thinking I could get away with things or charm my way out of, you know, write a nice letter and that'll resolve everything. Some problems in life can't be resolved that way. And that's, if there's no consequences, if there's no punishment, what is there to learn from a mistake? Exactly. And I think it does get pretty dangerous because now in schools, people are being praised for participation. You know, there is no winning, there's no losing, there's no consequences, there's no celebration for the work anymore Mm. right so i think it's starting to get very confusing for Mm. for the future generation i'd love to hear your thoughts on what integrity means to you i I think as a feeling it's the ability to sleep well at night it's it's this ability to really be radically honest with your conscience and say yep i i did as best as I could, given the circumstances. From a more textbook stance, integrity for me is doing what you say you will. And if you break your word, cleaning it up. So for instance, if let's say we scheduled this meeting at 12 o'clock and I showed up at 12.05, that's out of integrity. 
right? And in order to clean that up, this is where I think uh, I, I am constantly working at getting better at this. And I really appreciate the people who do do this when they acknowledge it and say, hey, I was five minutes late and it wasn't, I'm not going to blame it on traffic. I'm not going to blame it on this or that. I'm going to blame it on poor time planning on my own part. I knew there was traffic. I knew there was a possibility that I could have been delayed. It's not some external fault. It's my own fault. I said I was going to be here at 12 or I'm here at 12.05. That's step one. And then ideally next step as well would be to, to do something about it. Like set your alarm clock five minutes earlier next time or 10 minutes earlier or 15 minutes earlier next time so that you're the type of person who when you say you're going to do something, you do it. That to me is integrity. What about people that are like, you know, I believe that I am of moral integrity as in, you know, I, I believe I do good things. I have good intentions over bad intentions, obviously. But when it comes to something like doing what you say you're going to do, a lot of people don't mm. do what they say they do. Right. And I think there's a nuance of them suggesting an idea and maybe your assumption or how you interpret what they said that they're going to do isn't exactly what they planned. So since your profession is in communication, how would you mitigate those types of situations when someone says what they think they mean, but they didn't actually, and then now there's a issue of someone's integrity, is it or not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that that's, that's a great question, because it, here we kind of get into the conversation of where do you draw the line of my integrity versus yours, right, between what I say and you understand. And here's that beautiful bridge gap that we need to bridge somehow between what I say and what you hear, right? Because what those two could be totally different things. They can be totally different things between men and men, between men and women, between women and women. And well, here's what I know. I don't know much about this about this life yet, but there are a few core principles that I know I'll go that are just like laws of gravity. You can believe them, you can't, you cannot believe them, but they're gonna operate on you either way. And one is that it's a waste of effort trying to change someone else. Mm-hmm. So whenever someone misinterprets something that uh, my message that tells me I wasn't that good or that clear on my message that I need to go back and watch the recording or figure out what I said and how I said it so that my message could be more clear or clearly interpreted by the listener. How much energy is lost? How much, how many fights are caused by us trying to force someone to listen the way we want them to listen versus working on how we can communicate something in the language that that someone is able to hear that to me is is that power resides completely with the individual mm-hmm. well i think that's interesting because i recently read the five love languages mm. how much do you think that is involved in relationships and how people communicate so okay so this is this is a great topic so lots of people listening will listen to have read the five love languages and on a similar note, just that that pertains, I think, really well to romantic relationships and perhaps friendships as well, to know gifts, acts of, what is it, acts of service, words of affirmation, physical touch, and quality time are going to be five keys or five lenses through which we receive and appreciate love and also tend to give love. Now, I think in a broader context beyond romantic relationships and such, we can also just look at communication that brings someone's walls down and communication that puts someone's walls up really broad two broad camps and if we start to look at conversations that way we might have, we might start to observe how our conversation and our language that we use either brings someone's walls up or brings someone's walls down 
So I'm someone who I get, I literally get paid to have conversations with people on a day-to-day basis. And I've learned over many, many years of talking with people, what kind of conversation and language puts people's walls up and what kind of conversation and language brings people's walls down. And I see it at family gatherings when I'm saying certain things that are triggering for my family and I see them get irritated and I see my sister's eyes start to twitch. Everyone here, everyone listening knows the types of language and the things they say that brings people's walls up and brings people's walls down. On the flip side of the triggering language, there's also certain language when I'm talking to my girlfriend, for instance, and I say something that just makes her coo, that opens up her heart, something that that really speaks to her. And she just, I feel her melt, like she just melts in my hands. And it's a wonderful thing. And she does it to me all the time as well. So I'm not sure exactly where to go with this, but there's a, there's a million different contexts and, and ways that we can focus on reading the individual that we're speaking to and, and saying what needs to be said in order for their walls to come down. And then we're able to say anything and speak from the heart without it being perceived or interpreted the wrong way. So to take this one step further, and I'll just add one more thing, Amanda. For me, like I have critical conversations with people all the time. I often tell people stuff they don't want to hear. I, yeah. I tell them really hard stuff, the truth about themselves they don't want to look at, the difficult shadow side, you could call it shadow work if you want to, but the stuff that people are not acknowledging themselves. And I find that the tried and true way of doing any of that, if you're ever trying to deliver tough feedback to someone, is to stand in love, to stand in love. It's to stand in doing it for their benefit and helping them see that before saying anything. Creating the context of anything I say here, it's not because I'm an asshole. It's not because I want you to suffer from this. It's because genuinely I want what's best for you. And if we can create that relationship, that trust, then I have permission to say just about anything. <laughs> and it's, I, don't, I, I try not to abuse that power. Yeah. I think that's interesting because, I mean, I'll be honest, I, I'm confused still on what my love languages are. There's love languages that I think I receive, but then I also feel like I was conditioned to receive them in a certain way because of my upbringing. And this is what I would value as what love is supposed to be viewed as. But I think the biggest takeaway is to start start your relationships with love without a selfish interest, right? Like you are here to serve and give back to others and love first versus how is everyone going to love me? How is everyone going to give me affection and attention and all of the things that are going to feed my ego? And I think that's the biggest switch up when I started to read that book. Mm, right, right. Um, okay. Yeah, so making it about how you can fulfill your partner's love languages versus how you can get yours perfectly interpreted and read and met and needed. And yeah, perfect. Yeah. What a great, what a great thing to focus on. Yeah, because at that point, if instead of trying to get a rise out of someone or get a certain type of reaction, love is just going to be love. And it doesn't really matter if they interpret it or don't interpret it or see it this way or not. Like, I think love can universally be felt if it's mm. with, you know, those true intentions, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Truly. Well, watch an interview with the Dalai Lama, and there's a perfect example of universal love. I, I think uh, if, if all of Instagram and social media was filled with the Dalai Lama talking, the world would be <laughs> such a more content, peaceful, compassionate place. Because there's a man who's just so in love with the universe. Yeah. Not a, not a wrinkle on his face, and he's like, I don't know how many years old. insane right so you obviously have a lot of practice communicating with people from all different walks of life and 
I'm pretty sure you can tell if someone doesn't have a lot of practice communicating or might only know how to communicate in a certain one-sided direction. So how do you get to the core of what they, what their needs are? You know, if you're in a, in a cold call with someone, if you're just beginning your relationship with them, how do you bridge deeper? Mm -hmm. Do you mean in a professional sense, in a romantic sense, in a friendship sense, like trying to understand someone's needs? What do we, under what context? Is there a difference in your approach? Mm, yeah, I think so. Um, so I, I help people preach their goals. That's kind of what I, to summarize my work pretty well, like I, I help my clients reach their goals. So their needs are, in the context of our relationship, would be fairly outcome-based. Okay. Versus like a, a friendship, there's not really an outcome in my mind to a friendship. The friend, it's like dancing. There's not a point to dancing. You just go out on the dance floor and dance and it's fun, but you just dance versus like uh, a 100 meter sprint. You're trying to sprint to a finish line. You're, you're trying to get somewhere. Right. So I, I think there is definitely a difference for me in that sense. Which one are you more, more curious about? Well, I think it makes, it's a little bit more straightforward if it is a goal oriented one. Yeah. Yeah isn't a goal to it. And I would argue that, I mean, in a, ro a romantic or platonic relationship, there is an outcome. Like you want to grow together. I mean, there's probably more expectations on a romantic front of if you want to like live together, if you want to do things together, if you want kids together, like, I think that's very outcome-based. Would you not think so? Is it different? I, yeah, I think I, I, for, I think I disagree with you on that. Okay. Yeah. Because, um, that, but I think that's one way of looking at it. And perhaps if we take like a Darwinian approach and say our evolutionary basis on this planet is to procreate, find a partner, have 2.2 kids and white picket fence, blah, 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 blah. Then sure. There might be a, a, an outcome to it. However, in my opinion, if you, if you're searching for a relationship and it's outcome-based or transactional, then what happens when the outcome is gone? What happens when the kids leave the nest? What happens when things don't turn out the way they seemed versus it being just a mutually enriching experience that, that, that's able to last through the ages, right? So I guess in my mind, I think if, if it's outcome-based, there's, there's an expiry date on that relationship, right? Versus if, if it's seen as just like a, a mutually enriching, I, I can't think of a better way to say it, just like something that both people feel like this makes my life better and we're going to work on continuing that feeling, then that to me, I, in my mind, that has more staying power than the alternative. I'm, I'm curious how you would maintain that because I would say most people are outcome oriented, right? whether mm -hmm. it's professional or personal you want to feel loved by this person and that could be an outcome in whatever shape or form that is, you know, you. Ah, so, but then does that make you a fair weather relationship? Does that mean that you're only going to be there in the good times when you feel loved, when you feel like your needs are being met, when if my love language is gifts, I'm receiving gifts, you know, mm -hmm. when the sun is shining, that, that, that sounds fragile to me. It is because it's only self-serving for, you know, certain selections of your relationship with that person. And I think we have been conditioned to only value the good parts of a relationship. And then any kind of tension or strain, you know, is bad. But if you think of like working out or stretching your muscles, you know, you need mm -hmm. that tension in order to release, but we don't think of it that way when we engage in a relationship. Mm, for sure. 
That's a that's a really good point, right? So I think if if I hear if I'm hearing you correctly, like you're kind of seeing that that tension that that stress that's applied in a relationship is actually part of the growth or the part of the the growing process that's actually so necessary for a relationship to have a strong foundation. Am I understanding you correctly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a really great book called Anti-Fragile. Have we talked about that book? I think so. I think you did mention yeah. it recently. Yeah. Okay. Anti-Fragile, Nassim Taleb. It's all about the concept of those things that we apply pressure to makes them, making them stronger, right? Okay. So we think of lifting weights as a great example. When you lift weights, you pick them up and put them down. Based on how heavy they are and how hard you push yourself, you rip the muscles and then they grow back stronger, right? So it's a process of applying force, breaking it down. And if we looked at that, we might, a scientist might say, that's horrible. You're, you're injuring yourself. You're hurting your muscle fibers. But in reality, it makes you stronger. It's the same thing with a hot topic these days, vaccines. A vaccine is a small amount of a very harmful virus that's injected into your body to trigger your immune, immune response. The immune response has a, it's like a practice run where now it has to, like everyone at arms, white blood cells get to work and, you know, remove that virus. And then it's prepared for the exposure to future, a future virus of the same, same category. In the same way, I, I think humans as a, as a whole, it's a great metaphor for humans and, and how we are, where we're not these little candles where a little bit of wind and it'll knock us over. We're like bonfires, right? And, and in my mind, we've got to find a partner who's, who's, has that similar mentality of we're a bonfire where if there's a windstorm, we're going to just blow up, right? We're going to get stronger together and we're going to face, we're going to lean into adversity because that, that we know is going to make us both stronger and enrich our, and enrich our relationship. Easier said than done. It's not as, you know, it's not as simple as, as how I'm perhaps making it out to be, but yeah, to your point, it's a, it's, it's a great, it's a great point about relationships where we, I think we really do need to embrace that those challenges in two completely different sets of dna and behaviors and traumas clashing together trying to find a way to cohabitate yeah i think like as soon as we experience any negative feelings we don't we don't notice that those negative feelings are about ourselves we attribute those negative feelings to the other person externally and we think it's them and then we put the blame onto them for you feeling bad but it's actually you're feeling bad about something about yourself that you're not unpacking right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, projection 101, right? Same coach who gave a TED talk, uh, the way I heard her describe it, which is it just so inconveniently true is, uh, if you spot it, you got it. <laughs> exactly. If you spot it, you got it. The world, life, other people are just a reflection of you. If you spot it, something pisses you off about someone you're complaining about something. Well, look in the mirror. Is it some, something, it's life reflecting back at you what you don't want to look at for yourself. Mm-hmm. I hate that, but it's the more I chew on that concept, the more I realize it's true for me. How do you feel about potential new clients that come in and they have an aspiration, an idea of what they believe is the best way to live? And usually that's conditioned by whatever media outlets or whatever they see or deem as successful sure. or a fulfilling life, whether that's personal or professional, but usually there's an ideal state and no one's going to be that ideal state. So I feel like a lot of people get disappointed when it doesn't fit to that ideal state. And do you experience people laboring over this ideal state, you know, wanting to be a multimillion dollar entrepreneur, you know, whatever their version of what they think is supposed to be the right way is supposed to get the super hot supermodel 
you know, girlfriend or boyfriend (laughs) and feel love all the time. You know what I mean? Or whatever that case is, how have you navigated around those preconceived notions and what they think is actually what they thought they wanted and then actually unpacking what they really do want? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Okay. This is a great topic. I think if I'm hearing your question correctly, this is kind of a conversation around how do we help people not make the mistake of attributing all their success to the realization of some goals, some vision of their life or how they think it's going to look like, I'm just going to wake up. I'm on the greener. I'm on the, now the grass is green. I've got a Lambo in the driveway and a multi-billion dollar mansion. All that stuff. Sure. Great. So I, I have a really, I have a good story about this, um, of my own mini experience with this. And let me just first start by saying like, most of my clients are millennials and most millennials want a $10,000 a month income and location independence. And the rest is arbitrary. Okay. Or the rest is secondary. It's so funny. I cannot tell you how many times it's it's almost predictable. It's like 80% of people I talk to, that's their dream. (laughs) The dream is one of their main goals. And, you know, having done that for many years, I, I can tell you, it's not like it's a contributing factor, but it's definitely not enough to be happy all the time. So on the topic of like reaching goals and such, I'm, I'm not someone who helps people become multimillionaires for the sake of it. I'm actually very wary of checking people on their intentions and really asking the hard questions and having them think through like what next, as in, if you get there, will you really be happy? It, does that path make you happy? Does the thought of getting there, like if you, if you actually step into that world and imagine now you've gotten it, you've reached the goal, let's say it's you've got a $10,000 a month income, you're making passive, maybe it's passive income or something, and you're living on a beach in Mexico, then what? Are you happy? Have you had, are all your needs met? Do you have a perfect relationship? Are you smiling every day or do you fulfilled? Do you feel fulfilled by your work? Are your strengths being honed? Are your talents being flexed every day? Do you feel like you're doing meaningful work that contributes to the betterment of others around you, right? Those types of things that are kind of often missing from these kind of surface level goals. So when I was 20, I had this experience in business where I was a part of a a franchise model and it was called College Pro. And this was a painting franchise that actually the company just went under last year, but they were in business for 50 years, helping young people start their first business, give them all the training and the tools to run a business with a business coach and really figure out how to be an entrepreneur. And great, like one of the best experiences of my life. And in my second year, I had all these goals where I made every mistake in the book in my first year. I treated people like shit. My communication was awful. I thought I got my idea of what being a good boss is from like Ebenezer Scrooge or like Mr. Burns from The Simpsons, like tell people what to do, know everything, like just awful. So anyways, in my second year specifically, I really worked on leadership and I really worked on being the type of boss I wanted to be. And long story short, at the end of the year, we doubled the business. Everyone on the team was super happy. It went from in my first year, everyone quit on me. I was the worst boss on the face of the planet to in my second year, every single person I hired, more than half of them said I was the best boss they'd ever had. That We had a great summer together. I'm still friends with some of the people that were on that team. And I won, I was actually awarded for it. I won the Entrepreneur of the Year Award and the Leader of the Year Award, which are two of the biggest awards in that region at the time amongst about 50 different entrepreneurs. And like not tooting my own horn, but I worked really hard for that. And I, it was a big goal that I'd set. And I was so proud of myself and so excited to, to receive this award. And at the time I was in Amsterdam partying my face off 
zooming in on uh, online to be a part of this award ceremony from the other side of the world. And at 4 a.m., the, the, the camera literally got brought up onto the big stage where I was looking out and there was all these hundreds of people clapping and cheering. And there's me on a phone in front of a podium with a microphone there. And mm -hmm. I'm just, and I, at the time I was, I was, you know, it was like 4 a.m. I was quite enjoying myself at the party. And it was the surreal experience of having reached all my goals and, you know, made a bunch of money. And at the time it wasn't like millions and millions, but I, I was like 22 years old and I'd made like a hundred thousand dollars. So to me, I was basically rich. I was a multimillionaire. So first time in my life, self-made, I paid my way through school. I have enough money to do anything I want, traveling all over the place, buying fancy clothes, literally no, like not looking at price tags. And this was something that I, I set as a goal for myself, thinking it would make me happy. And uh, the following six months were miserable, miserable. I was so unhappy at that stage in my life, thinking that I'd had it all. And what did I do? I bought a red sports car, literally. Yeah. I bought a house. I bought a motorcycle. I went, I, I went about just acquiring material things that I th thought would bring me happiness. I did like the traditional like, buying my way into happiness journey. And I can tell you firsthand, it made me miserable. It didn't, it didn't just not make me happy. It made me miserable, right? And um, it had this very repelling effect between myself and the other people around me who were still, you know, fighting to make a living. Like you got to imagine I was in university at the time. Most of the people around me were buying the cheapest vodka they could and drinking in their dorm rooms to save money. Yeah. So it had this very isolating effect on me. And I think a lot of people experience this when they be, let's say, exit the rat race or no longer need to fight and clot in order to pay their rent. Once you get out of that, it's like, hang on a second, that gave credence to my existence. Now that that's not a part of it, what's next? What's the, what is my life all about? And I think this is a question that not enough people spend time talking about because and it makes sense because for the most part, we're, we're busy trying to provide for our needs or provide for our kids or pay the rent or set ourselves up for the future. And I'm not saying I'm out of the rat race. I, I work and I, I work hard in my business and I really enjoy it. But suffice to say, like that experience gave me a very, very keen interest in helping people steer clear of that pitfall because we also have to acknowledge hedonic adaptation, as in we get used to the, the belongings and things that we think are shiny shiny toys. Like we get used to the Ferrari in the driveway. We get used to our three-story hill mansion in Beverly Hills, right? We, it, we get, we're going to acclimatize to it no matter what. So ultimately, what is, a, what is a life worth pursuing? What is the ultimate goal? What's the journey that's going to really bring us fulfillment? And it's not a destination. Perhaps that's why earlier I said, I don't like outcome-based relationships. It's because the outcome isn't going to make us happy. For me, the outcome lasted four minutes, yeah. four minutes of sheer joy and like eyes rolling into the back of my head. Oh my God, I've done it. This is crazy. This is what success feels like. And then the sun went up the next day. Yeah. And that was it. And that was it. And it was like, and, and I was, I remember thinking the next day too, after I'd won all these awards and such, like, well, now I have to go run a million dollar business or else I'm a failure. Now I have to do what's next. I have to do something bigger and better. I have to. Oh, and it was a crushing feeling. I was, I was like, I was paralyzed by the fear of failure for years after that. Paralyzed. I was crushed because I thought I can't top that unless I do something grandiose, extraordinary. It's got to be better. Yeah. I feel like a lot of high achieving people 
always need to one up themselves. What am I going to say next year? You know, cheersing to the new year. And what am I going to be proud of? And it's got to be better than last year, you know, and every, every other time it's going to be better and better. And I got the same feeling when I was 23 and I was working at Cosmo, which was the only magazine I wanted to work at since mm. I was 14. And then I was like, that's it. You have your whole life ahead of you and you've just poured in everything to one outcome, one goal. And then once that task is checked off your list, you feel absolutely lost and it's insane. And I think that's, you know, dangerous when people attribute that to other people as in like they want tasks or checks filled off in a person's characteristics you know like this person has to say good morning good night to me every day check you know this person <laughs> has to do whatever you know and attributing that to a human that you can't control makes it even more complicated so what would you say is the the difference between you know having an outcome-based professional goal you know an inanimate object you know whatever your version of that versus a state of a relationship awesome yeah perfect it's like if i'm hearing this right it's like how do you weigh the, the balance how do you balance the outcome as the goal versus the journey either the state or the feeling that that outcome evokes yeah is that right mm -hmm. beautiful beautiful in my experience it's like primary and perpendicular so what is the primary aim and what is the perpendicular benefit? So let's use the example of money. I hear a lot of people setting a goal around money. Like I want to make $100,000. I want to make a million dollars. Sure. Then you've just made the outcome as the primary. Right? The outcome is the main focus. And the perpendicular benefit is all but ignored. Right? And like, and it's easy to find what that is if you just ask the person, okay, why do you want a million dollars? Why do you want $100,000? Why do you want 10K a month and the ability to travel? Well, because it's going to make me feel freedom or flexibility or control over my life, or it's going to give me a sense of pride or a sense of being able to start a family or whatever that means to them, right? That is a state that represents a set of feelings. It, it represents a way that the person wants to feel, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, we've just made the primary goal and the perpendicular feeling that, that that's associated with that outcome. What if we just changed it? What if we flipped it on its head and made the primary goal, the feeling, the state, Okay, great. I want to wake up feeling excited about my work. I want to feel joy. I want to feel like I'm, I'm doing my purpose. I want to feel like my work makes an impact. I want to feel like recognition. I want to feel excitement, whatever that feeling is. And the perpendicular outcome is, let's say, $100,000. Well, then we have a bunch of people who are pursuing what lights them up and money will come to them. The money will find them and it often finds them far faster than making the goal money itself. That to me, in my own life, I've, I've found that when I lean into and make the goal or the outcome, the feeling or the state that I want to wake up in every day, holy shit, like magic happens and money just finds its way to me or relationships or opportunities or whatever it is that I'm really wanting to come into my life. It's, and this gets into law of attraction and manifestation and all this stuff. And Joe, Joe Dispenza does a great job describing the, like, the elevated intention and the associated emotion and all that stuff. And yeah, I just, I think that we're, we're really, what I'm trying to describe here is in my mind, a different operating system for achievement that a lot of people could benefit from stepping into in the 21st century, suing the feelings and letting the rest take care of itself. But it takes trust. It takes belief in the, it takes trust, trust in the process. I hear people say that all the time, trust the process, trust the process, right? But really it takes trust in the process when you're doing something that you love, but you've got bills to pay, but you've got debts. You've got 
yeah. other things that are competing for your attention, right? It takes trust, right? Doing what you're doing right now, like with the Miss Amanda Chen show, it's an amazing pursuit and it's, it's so creative and it's not, it's not diluted by any commercial interest because you're not getting, you're not making money right now to do what you're doing. You're doing it just out of a pure feeling that you get from being a podcast host. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I can tell you enjoy, you love doing this. And like, so if, I think if more people gave themselves permission to chase that, unfortunately, the way it's set up, a lot of people don't give themselves that permission until their financial needs are covered. And that makes sense. Yes. Right? It makes perfect sense. I don't know the answer between finding that balance if someone is in financial straits, right? yes. if, they're, if they're not able to pay their bills. And that, that usually is a matter of like playing stronger financial defense, hiring a financial adv- advisor, like educating oneself on how to elevate their financial situation, which anyone can do in this day and age. And then maybe once that's done, starting to lean more into the state. But it's a, it's a challenging problem because in order to get to that state, one has to almost focus on the outcome being the money yeah. right? rather than the feeling. But even in, you know, as I say it, even in that situation, perhaps someone could focus on making the feeling growth, making the feeling progress, making the feeling like, wow, I was $20,000 in debt last month. Now I'm $18,000 in debt this month. That's progress. It's yeah. not scarcity. It's a feeling of like, I am improving my lot in life. Yeah, totally. Like the, just like that minute switch in your mindset to be more about the pursuit of something versus, you know, what you need to get done and like living in that survival mode. I want to um, wrap up with two last questions. Mm -hmm. So the first question is, I think it's really interesting because at the beginning of this conversation, you were saying that you were kind of attracted to this unemotional state following in your father's footsteps. And then now you kind of in your early 20s, you go through this goal-oriented lifestyle, and then now you're pursuing a space where you want to chase a feeling. And coming from a space where you didn't think that emotions or feeling was safe, how did how would you articulate that switch? Mm. And you know, what is the most important learning from that journey? Yeah, great question. I had a very wise friend of mine spell it out for me here, and that was when it's like we live in a dualistic society. Even the the English language itself is just laden with black and white, good and bad, right and wrong, one and two, binary. It's very, very binary. And it's it's a little bit dangerous. And I I speak Spanish as well. So it was very interesting for me learning Spanish to see how dualistic English is by comparison. And so uh, the point I'm trying to make is that positive and negative emotions was a stance that I held as the truth. We have positive and neg- positive emotions, as in emotions that make us feel good. And we have negative emotions, emotions that don't feel so good, like anger, sadness, guilt, frustration, all that stuff. And it was when a friend of mine told me that, no, 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 there's actually, the, the perspective she shared with me is that consider that there's actually no positive and negative emotions. There's just emotions. Mm-hmm. And if you try and block yourself from feeling the negative emotion, you're just going to blunt the positive emotions as well. So if it's like a wave and in the middle, the middle point is your set point of your emotionality. Like some people are just joyful energizer bunnies and some people are kind of sad sallies most of the time. There's kind of a wave of of emotionality that someone goes through on a routine basis, a pattern of existence, if you will. There's a, someone gets really happy and that's the top of their elastic band. Someone gets really down and down on themselves and that's the bottom of their elastic band. For a long time, I tried to blunt the, the downward waves on my emotionality, thinking that was the right thing to do. And what happened, it blunted the tops of my emotionality as well. And I was kind of walking around like half dead, 
Yeah. I didn't know it at the time. I thought I was all good. And, mm-hmm. uh, but once I learned that and I started to allow myself to feel more of my negative, negative emotions, if you will, I realized how beneficial it was and how, how, much, how much more vibrant my life became. And to, to just go one step further, I actually, um, I've worked with a, a counselor for on quite a few occasions. And this one woman who's like a soul engineer, done it for like 35 years, she gave me a, an exercise that totally blew my mind. And I'm a guy who does my three gratitudes in the morning and all that positive hocus pocus that it works. It's actually <laughs> it's a great practice. Um, but what she told me to do to better acquaint myself with my, those things I was trying to avoid was she gave me an exercise. And that was at the end of every day, write down all the things that pissed you off. And I was like, well, I said, what? Why? <laughs> Why? And she said, so that you actually start to acknowledge and understand those little things that piss you off. Don't filter them. Don't judge them. Just someone cuts you off in traffic. Oh, that fucking asshole. Someone doesn't respond to you for a text message for a few hours. Like any little thing, no matter how big or how small, just write it down. And it only took a week for me to look and see, oh, wow, I'm actually a human. I've been trying to make myself superhuman. I've, trying to, I've been trying to sail over those negative thoughts and feelings and emotions that I experience without acknowledging my own humanity. And it, it, it really acquainted me with how powerful that was to not only step into this positive psychology world that's so you know, popular and all the rave these days, but also go into the negative and embrace that side of myself. That's very cool. I remember I created a failure resume of everything that I failed at and kind of celebrated it and created a resume on it. And just to realize all of the negative things, it's something we don't practice enough because I don't know, I feel like we just don't want to look at it. You just want to look at all the good stuff. You want to think of all of the growth and celebrate all of that stuff. But I think it's so cool to celebrate moving through that negative space. And just coming out clean, you know, whatever that means. It doesn't go up. It's just, you're just out of it. Totally. Totally. That's, and it, it, I, I love that. And it, that failure resume, that's a great exercise. And it's nice to see on Instagram these days, more and more people on social media posting their lows. Yes. Right? Acknowledging, like I've seen like lots of stuff through COVID and, and through the pandemic of people sharing a picture of them crying or talking about how they're having a low day and like, reaching out for support. And I think that's a really beautiful thing and a, a direction that social media can go for people to reach out and share their humanity. That's big. Finally, right? Like, hi, we're all humans. We're not these crazy materialistic things that you know we like to comfortably <laughs> say that we are. Um, I want to wrap yeah. up with my last question. I know we've covered a lot of topics today. So were there any topics that jumped out at you that you would like to invite another man to elaborate on further in another episode on the show? I like the idea. I'd be very curious to hear some controversial views of masculinity and femininity. Yeah, I like hearing those conversations and, and, you know, hearing two people tee off as to their approach or what they think is the right way or the true masculinity and true femininity and the balance in this day and age, not so much from a fem- feminist perspective of like down with the patriarchy and all the, all the negativities around that, but truly what an embodied masculine and embodied feminine presence looks like, feels like in the 21st century, because that's always evolving and changing. And um, what may be true now might not be true tomorrow. So I, I think it's a, it's always a fascinating topic for me. 
Interesting. Cause I, I think you're very logical and, and straightforward with looking at human intentions and emotions and our perceptions of each other and how that's a reflection of ourselves. So why does the gender divide interest you? It's not so much the gender divide, actually. In fact, I don't mean gender at all. I just mean masculine energy and feminine energy. I would say like, so for instance, like I I would consider myself a fairly balanced, like I have a very feminine side. I grew up mainly around women. My Mm. my dad worked a lot and was away. So growing up, I had, I I would say, call myself a very feminine guy. I had lots of feminine friends, I had lots of girlfriends and, and, um, more just like what it means to embody both and and <laughs> not uh, trying to stay away from like what's the right way or what's the wrong way but uh yeah no i i think it has actually nothing to do with gender okay interesting yeah. so it's just a balance of different types of energies and how they how they flow together yeah okay. yeah exactly and how we can harness the the positive elements of both and really like apply that if, if everyone in society embodied that what kind of difference we could make okay that's amazing thank you so much for this i like that we get into the idea of writing down negative thoughts and celebrating the new trend in social media on posting about people's lows rather than just their highs truly giving us space to deal with negative emotions and acknowledging them as normal and human and if you are looking to share your feelings with other peers make sure to check out tether Unfortunately, I'm not surprised that it took this long to create a platform just for men to build a community that encourages open and honest conversations. Make sure to subscribe. And if you'd like to be on the show or know of someone with a unique perspective, slide into my DMs at Miss Amanda Chen on Instagram. And I'll see you next Wednesday with more episodes of The 100 Masked Men.